That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Pobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus focused vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Okay, welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. It's Dr. Dave here with my sidekick, Dr. Michelle. What's up? Hello. 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 How are you? Good. What's happening? Uh, you know, uh, a visit, visiting a friend today. So working offsite. Nice. But we did a cold dip today. I've never done a cold plunge. Nice. And I did two minutes twice. And I'm quite proud of myself, even though my toes were like the whole time. Wim Hof would be saying. so proud of you. Your mom. Well, I know. I really the breathing is key. The breathing is key. That was my first time doing it. And I'm pretty stoked about it. So nice. um, it kind of makes me want to do it more because I feel like I David Goggins my way through that. I was like, you can do this. <laughs> nice. Well, we'll use that. We'll use the Dutch transition to, to introduce our, uh, our <laughs> yeah. So from Wim Hof to teen health, you know, that's a, that's a pretty, pretty uh, logical transition, right? Swing and a hit. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about our awesome guest today. Um, our awesome guest today is Dr. Erin T. Winkle. She is an osteopathic, a naturopathic doctor, an incredible woman, a badass boss, and she's also the creator of the Teen Collective, which is um, a group type setting for helping teens kind of understand their health and how they can be empowered with their health journey, which is actually pretty awesome and I think a really undervalued area for healthcare. I don't think we really examine that area. We like. We look at infants, we look at geriatrics, we tend to look at adults and somehow we like miss the mark when it comes to like puberty and teen health. Like it's like they kind of mm -hmm. get shoved under the rug. So I think it's a really awesome area. So thank you for being on the show, Erin. Thank you for having me. I love talking teen health and any opportunity I get, I jump at it. I was like, yes, please. Let's tell more <laughs> people about how important it is. Absolutely. How did you get into this particular area of focus for, for naturopathic medicine? Yeah, I kind of knew as soon as I, not I shouldn't say as soon as I graduated, as I was ready to step into practice, I had the opportunity to be on a retreat and I had just graduated and was writing my board exams and people were just like, you know, when you're a naturopath out in the world, people ask you questions, like, what are you interested? What's your thoughts on this and that? And every time I would talk, I somehow would talk about teen girls and how important it is they know about periods and like their health and, you know, body image and all of these things. And the one woman just stopping, she's like, you know, this is your thing, right? Like <laughs> whenever you talk about it, like you're so passionate, you're engaging, like, do you know? And I was like, I didn't know, but then that I just never forgot that moment. And then, mm -hmm. so when I went into practice, I started it. And then as I practice it and the more I'm studying it and learning about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a huge window of opportunity that we can have to really set these teens up for success as adults. Like if we can teach them foundations and then the more I learned about their brain development, they don't want to listen to their parents. <laughs> Even though a lot of parents are like, we understand, you know, the health foundations they have to have, but my teen doesn't listen to me. Mm -hmm. It's actually a part of their development because their brain is going from being 
dependent child brain to transitioning into adult independent brain. And it literally pushes them to seek advice from peers, from mentors. So it's ideal for them to have mentors and said peers that they can gain accurate, helpful information from. Um, and also it's a big education piece to parents like, yeah, this is normal. And usually the first thing I tell parents when we start working together, I was like, what's going to happen is I'm going to tell them stuff that you've already told them. And they're going to say, <laughs> Dr. Aaron, blah, 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 blah. Like as if it's brand new, they've never heard it. You're going to be frustrated. <laughs> Just <laughs> That's normal. And they're, and they're like, and pretty much eight times out of 10 that happens. They're like, oh my God. Or they'll send me an email. You're right. Like they keep quoting Dr. Aaron said this, even though I've told them like so many yeah. times. Um, so that's one important piece is, is, a, is giving teens access to mentors and health educators that they're wanting to listen to and they want to connect with. Love and then it. as a parent, you feel confident that they're getting right information. And then your relationship as parent and teen isn't as stressed because you're not always nagging and always being the provider of all the stuff, right. um, which is so key. But then by teaching them this, by not their parents, they actually accept it. And then now they have access to it forever. The rest of their life, they have access to this knowledge have access to their health. And I really think they get a launch better into adulthood having those like foundational pieces. I love this is your thing. The layering of benefits <laughs> to that is incredible. Cause yeah. you're right. It also probably creates a healthier dynamic between the parents and the teenagers too. Mm -hmm. And I never would have thought of that as something I was just like, yeah, let's empower teens to understand their health so that when they become adults, they're, they're better prepared for that stage. But you're right. Even just the dynamic of like parent teenager and mm -hmm. I that was my next that. question. That's Can crazy. I use it as my jump off? Yeah. Yeah. What What do you see happening with the parent-child relationships as as teens start working with you or in the collective? Mm -hmm. So, a the parents feel more calm and relaxed and less worried, which as a parent, super important, up. right? You're just like, oh my gosh, I'm always worried about this. Remember that. And as teens, they're more independent, and we know intuitively, like I gotta let them go. Like, you know, but you're so worried. So when there's like, it's like, I'm a bridge, like a little transition piece that like, they know they're getting information. They know they have someone else to talk to. Right. And then I also, a lot of it is supporting the parent as well as the teen and teach them how important it is that they're modeling the behaviors they want. Like, how are you eating? How are you sleeping? What's your phone use? Those are huge pieces. And just, it's a lot of honestly education. Right. Because if you think about when you hear teens, most people are like, oh, God, teens scare me. Right. There was a really interesting study I came across. They compared two groups of parents like preteen, like grade six, seven. And they just asked them, like, what is your thoughts, perceptions on teenagers? And then they split them into two groups. One group was, oh, God, teenagers are scary. They're always getting in trouble. They're rude. They're lazy, et cetera. Insert all the negative assumptions we have about teens. Yeah. The other group was just like, no, I'm curious. I'm interested about it. Like, you know, I think it's going to be an exciting time. And they just had totally different perspectives on it. And guess what? At, after they followed them after the high school years, the group of parents who just, A, had a different perspective, their teens were less lazy, were less rude, got into less trouble, mm. all those things. Whereas the parents who had this preconceived notion that teens are bad, quote unquote, their teens were bad. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, just like you have an expectation that's here, people can rise to it. They can also fall to an expectation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're doing a lot of disservice to teens, which is where we educate the parents about what's normal, what is going on developmentally. Right. Just like a lot of things is their mood and they, they're moody. Is it their hormones? No, it's not their hormones. It's their brain development. How do you talk to them? So really we're teaching parents who are never taught this and teens emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm how to recognize mm. an emotion and what to do about it, right? So it's really coaching both the parents because the parents are practicing a skill they were not parented, right? Most of us now who have teens definitely were not taught how to talk about our emotions. What does that mean? What's a healthy way of expressing that emotion without hurting another person, right? So it's really teaching people that this is developmentally appropriate. Just like when your two-year-old has a tantrum and hits you, you know that's development, developmentally appropriate. You're not mad at them. You're not blaming them. Same with teens. Mm -hmm. We're not blaming them. They're not intentionally trying to be mean or rude or hurt your feelings or say something sassy, right? It's like the iceberg picture is my favorite. You see like the back talking and they're always on their phone. Again, all the negative things that we see, but underneath like 
they're worried. What's my friends thinking of me? Like they're, they don't know. They are the ones who are like, I don't know why I keep saying and doing these things. I don't know why I keep flipping my lid over something that I know is a silly thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we educate both of them, there's less tension and they can learn to communicate more effectively so that they're also not just like mad and resentful towards each other. Cause it's a tricky period of time to get through. Absolutely. You're a magical being. Oh my God. I'm like, I don't even have kids. And I'm like, tell me more, <laughs> but it's, I feel like this is such an underestimated area mm-hmm. to support for development. Yeah. And I think this is so incredible. Yeah, no. And it's true to like teens also the way their brains development, they are more out of the box thinkers. They want new and novel things, which I think is also really important to continue into adulthood. If you meet the 40 or 50 year old who's like stagnant and bored of their life, it's because they're stuck in a rut. Teens are never stuck in a rut. Shouldn't say that, but like, because Mm -hmm. of who they are, they have that like spark, right? What I think our society tries to do is quell the spark, fit into the box, instead of letting our teens maintain that open thinking, maintain that out of the box, questioning things, pushing back, rebelling, you know, they love to pull the curtains back on stuff and be like, what's really going on? They love that. But we need thinkers like that in the future. Yeah. Isn't that just part of like evolutionary biology though? You're supposed to, you're supposed to sort of question um, the old ways to some degree. Oh yeah. 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 And one, one, one thing I've struggled with, with um, cause, cause I've got a couple step kids, teens. And one thing I've really struggled with is just going, uh, they go to school too early and yes and, oh my god and and so i mean what do you do about it it's on i mean you can't i can't really change i always say school times are made for the teachers not for the students when they're when they're yeah. teens is that something you talk about with with them or what what A sort lot. of yeah what do you say about sleep and <laughs> yeah. teen so it's definitely tricky because so again back to teen brain development the way like even their melatonin rises and falls their melatonin doesn't get to that like sweet spot till about midnight so they're naturally not tired until about midnight Whereas actually parents saw last couple of years when there was virtual school, they saw my teens is up until about midnight, 1 a.m. And then they wake up at nine or 10. So they're getting their nine to 10 hours of sleep that they need, but they're following their own rhythm. And if we look back, like, I don't know how long ago, historically, the teens, the adolescents of the tribe stayed up later to protect the tribe because they could, they were more alert later in the night. They're more awake. So they are actually designed to be up later to be on lookout mm-hmm. while the adults and young people slept. So that's still happening. They're still, their natural ebb and flow is like, go to bed around midnight, wake up nine or 10. Our society is not built that way. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes talking with the teen, like why do they care if they need more sleep? Because also they're young, they're vital. They can easily survive off of six, seven hours of sleep, mm-hmm. right? So it's more about having a conversation with them and this is often where it's interesting working with the parents and teens because the parents care about sleep for their health, for their development. They're worried like, oh, are they like parents worry about all the health things. The teen doesn't really care about any of them. <laughs> they just don't, right? So it's why would they care about sleep? Like, an athlete, are they hitting their performance goals, right? Are they struggling in their first morning class to focus? Are they, right? Another big thing is like once they start driving, like you can't be driving when you're tired. Like if you're underslept and that kind of becomes like, I talk a lot about privilege and responsibility, driving a car, getting a car as a teen is a privilege. It comes with responsibility, meaning you need to be more rested. They can go to bed early, but they have to want to, and it takes more effort, mm. right? So it's just, honestly, we talk sleep hygiene, we talk building sleep rituals, right? And those teens who have a desire to change it will, but if the teen is feeling great and nothing is you know, not working out for them, then we talk about like, okay, are you tired at 3 p.m.? Have a, have a cat now, right? Like how can mm-hmm. we still get in more sleep hours because you need it developmentally? But it's also like all their friends are up the same amount of late. Social things are happening that late. Um, I personally just wish school hours would change. <laughs> I had a couple yeah. teams this last year, their school did change. And actually it's not the schools. So I've been looking into this because I'm curious, like who do we have to... Um, lobby to change this because mm-hmm. this is detrimental to their well-being yeah right? without sleep they're going to have increased depression exactly. increased anxiety they're not going to have those best cognitive function we know that like that's just 
that's scientific fact at this point, right? But apparently it's not even the school system per se, it's the busing schedules. Like the, whoever owns like the busing companies decide the schedule and they won't, I don't know. I don't know yet. So this huh. is not fact, but I've been trying to figure out like who's in charge yeah. of making these rules. That's because true. if we're talking about the wellness and health of our people in public school system, then we got to talk about the timing of things. I've had a couple kids who this last year, for some reason, the way it worked out and with like the changing of all the school structures, they didn't have to start, start school till 10. It was a game changer for them. Mm. Like it made such a difference for them, like academically, socially, they felt better mm-hmm. just because they could more easily get more sleep because it was in tune with how they function. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's tricky. It is tricky. I like would have you talked to any teachers about this? Like, is that something they'd even be amenable to or? I think that would really, really depend on the teacher. Like some teachers would be like, yeah, that sounds great. But the I think what we run into is like teachers also have families and kids at home. Right. So if they have to stay at work till five or six then they have to find childcare for their younger kids, mm-hmm. right? Like exactly. it's not an easy solution. It's not like we can just be like, oh, this is the way it is now. Yeah, um, yeah. there's definitely a ripple effect. Yeah. And then I think sometimes it comes down to the economy. Like, well, how are teens going to have an after-school job? How are they going to do this, right? Um, I was like, I don't know all the answers mm-hmm. to it, to be honest. But I really mm-hmm. wish it wasn't 8 a.m. I was like, yeah. at least if it was nine. And some schools are, it depends on your district. Like some are nine. But some mm-hmm. are still eight and it's like it's too so early. early. It's too early. And then yep. let alone if oh my gosh, if they're a swimmer, they're up at four or five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I know. And like right. it's they just there isn't enough time in a day for a teen, and that's their sport. They love it. They're great at it. The only opportunity is to go early. Like have like six a.m. practices and they have mm-hmm. to get to school. Then they still have homework after school and they have to eat somewhere in there. And then before you know, it's 11 p.m. Like there just isn't enough hours in a day to give them mm-hmm. more sleep. That's a tricky one. Yeah. But it's super interesting to finally be having a conversation and having awareness that this is something that maybe we need to begin making some adjustments for to improve mm-hmm. probably everybody's quality of life. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. everybody yeah. who's going to interact with that teenager who's tired and cranky everyone else is, it's, again, it's that ripple effect, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's super mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You brought up something interesting as well, that you had an observation um, between uh, a new observation that you're kind of fascinated by and learning more when it comes mm-hmm. to teen health, but specifically with female teens. And mm-hmm. um, was it ADHD or, autos- or autistic, spent- autistic spectrum showing up? ADHD. 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 I mean, that could be a whole other conversation is like, there's a lot of overlap actually. And it's also true in the autism spectrum that girls are often missed Mm. and they're not diagnosed till later. I don't know as much about that yet, right? My current focus is, has been ADHD because what I'm seeing in practice is that a, like young girls and women are getting diagnosed way later in life and it presents very differently. So even right now, as soon as we say ADHD, people probably immediately went, I thought boys had that. I thought that was the hyperactive boys. Mm -hmm. That's usually every response I get is like, oh, or if I just tell people what, when you think of ADHD, what do you think of? They think of the boy who can't sit still in class, who's running Mm -hmm. around, has behavior issues, right? Um, Which is a whole other problem of itself because they're not a troublemaker. They're not a bad kid. They just are um, neurodiverse is the more common Mm -hmm. term people are using. And we're realizing is people all don't think and learn and act the same way. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. So I wanted to say that like ADHD as a diagnosis doesn't mean there's something wrong with somebody. It means that you work and think in different ways than what is expected to you basically in our public school system or in our nine to five world, right? Like those expectations are not your strength, but that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the person who gets an ADHD diagnosis. But what's happening is because girls and boys present so differently. So yeah, we have the boy again, typically, and this isn't always true. Some girls will still present hyperactive and they'll get caught early if they have that more hyperactive component, which they can. And some boys are probably misdiagnosed because they don't have the hyperactive, right? So it's not always hundred percent both, but we're seeing the pattern that most boys are more hyperactive girls or more, um, 
inattentive is what they call it when they subclass it. But how that presents is they still are hyperactive, but it's all internal. So they're more fidgety. So they pick their nails and they bounce their leg, but they don't get up and they don't disrupt the classroom. So teachers are missing it entirely. Mm-hmm. And most parents are missing it. It's so internal oftentimes because I have the parents do an assessment of what they think. And then I have the team do their own assessment mm-hmm. and they're very different. Wow. The parents like, yeah, maybe it could be this. Yeah, maybe I've seen some of that. The teen is like, oh my God, yes. Oh yeah, this is me hundred percent. It's so internalized, right? Mm. It's so, and they mask is a thing. Like they are clever enough to realize I'm not doing the same that everyone else is doing. So they pretend. And they're very intelligent and they're very competent and they can get good grades and they can make it through school. No problem. Again, they're not disruptive. They're not a problem to the teacher. So no one really pays attention, right? Because they are fine. And they're making grades. That's what we care about, right? They're making grades. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the problem? What's the problem with them then? So it's mostly um, an executive functioning issue. So it's a harder time, a, a, or really, if we go deeper, it's an emotional regulation issue, right? So regulating emotions is like the deeper core of ADHD and executive function. So it's harder to organize things, right? It's harder to manage time. And then what happens, and I don't know yet what the actual link is per se in terms of neurodevelopment, but they are more likely to experience anxiety, depression. Mm -hmm. And that's usually what happens when I started seeing this more, a teen girl will come to me because of really severe anxiety, depression. That's really severe for like a 13 or 14 year old or 15. Usually they're just starting high school. As pressures in life build, it starts to become more obvious right? They're struggling more. Like, why can't I keep up? Right? Because otherwise, when you talk to that person, they're intelligent. And so there's people like, well, why can't you do it? And that's what the person starts saying to themselves. Well, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do it? There's not a lack of intelligence, right? Um, so, and they're more likely to have those severe anxieties for depressions. That's usually what happens is it gets really intense, right? Because they're missed. And even if the questionnaire is most of us use now that are like widely, widely acceptable are very dominant to the physical symptoms, even in the DSM. Like if you were to do it by DSM criteria, most girls with ADHD don't qualify for the diagnosis. Mm. Okay. okay. I, I, was, I was wondering when this was, this would come up because it's on my mind all the time and it seems relevant to bring it up now because of the, um, uh, the issues that I, I think because you brought up girls specifically. And yeah. so I, I've been reading or listening to the audiobook, The Coddling of the American Mind, mm. and, and how um, girls seem to be more uh, affected uh, by, like, I should say, it's, it's iGen or Gen Z or what, Gen Z for what, those who I can't keep Z. up with all the acronyms. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's People excellent. born in internet times. Uh, so, so <laughs> like teen, teens, so all, to, none of us. teens today and, and how, um, and then the evolution of social media and how, uh, girls, they tend to exhibit the same amount, uh, contrary to what you may think of aggressive behavior to others. However, unlike boys who are like going to punch each other in the face, mm-hmm. girls, basically they trash social status. That's yeah. like one of the ways that girls will psychological like, warfare. But but we've and maybe it's not maybe that's not anything you know earth shattering. But I f- I found it very interesting because now with social media in iGen, so these kids have grown up like on social media and stuff. Now girls are definitely more uh, susceptible to to a lot of these issues, uh, which which then lead to issues with like anxiety and depression. And, and I I think there might be some link there with. ADHD, maybe, I don't know. Um, uh-huh. Because now it's it's very easy to trash someone else, uh, social media, you can like, you know, fling dung at people now behind the safety of a screen. Uh-huh. And it's affecting girls disproportionately more than than boys. Um, and because we're growing up in a, a time of, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't know, what do we call the time? It just seems, um, there's a lot of cancel culture, canceling mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. it's easy to cancel other people. And 
I'm just wondering if, if the environment that teens are growing up in now, do you think, Aaron, is, is contributing to, to some of these ADHD, anxiety, depression type mm-hmm. symptoms? I mean, they totally are. Like to say that they aren't would just be false. But I mean, there's so many layers there. Like as you're talking, I'm just like, oh my gosh, one thing I think this is not just teen girls, but women in general, I think culturally from like, I'm going to go into, I'm going to be really feminist here for a second, but from the patriarchy, we are trained to be mean to each other and to compete. So there's that, right? And then you add in social media and absolutely it distances you. You're not seeing the hurt feelings immediately, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and I would say what's interesting is the teens that I work with anyways are way more aware of that as, an, as a worry, as an issue than I ever thought. I thought maybe it was more unknown, but teens get it. And if bullying always happened. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now they can do it on social media and you can't, it's like usually only happened at school. Now it can follow you home which yeah. is the, the problem, right? Um, and they don't get that immediate feedback of like, oh, I hurt that, per- that didn't look good. That didn't feel good even for me, right? right? We're, we're missing that piece. And I think what all of that is doing is, A, it's not supporting emotional intelligence, right? Like even as young kids and you're on the schoolyard and you pick on someone, which we've all done, you learn, you see their facial expressions, you witness someone feel sad. Right. Right. And then even in high school, you usually saw it. It was an interaction. So I think that is a negative effect of social media. Mm -hmm. Right. We are taking out that reading faces, reading cues, the palpable tension that happens when you have something like that occur. Mm -hmm. Right. But on the other side, I think there's huge wins that can come from social media, too. Like, I don't want to demonize it. I think there's a lot to learn. Actually, one of my foundations of health in teens is social media literacy. Oh, interesting. That's now like a health thing that matters because it's how does media affect you, right? Mm. Like you consume it, it's around. How is it affecting your emotional state? How are you interacting? Are you interacting as your true self, who you want to be on the internet, right? Like that's literally what we go through as like, just as I talk about digestion and I talk about hormones, I talk about social media literacy. Interesting. Because it's it's part of our world. It's a topic, yeah. Right. It's part of our I world. I feel like adults need to have social media literacy these mm-hmm. days too, mm-hmm. but might as well start off with the teenagers because they're going to grow up into adults and they better be yeah. more capable adults yep. for the future generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> right. So it's more just teaching them and like, and we're also still learning what are all the impacts because it happened so fast, really in the grand scheme of things, like it accelerated yeah. so quickly. So we're trying to catch up and be like, oh yeah, is this, well, teens in general are already more like dopamine sensitive. That's how their brains are wired. So then, and usually when you teach teens, like, like the big brother theories, they love that. They don't like to be tricked. They don't want to feel childish. And actually the most interesting thing I came across was they're trying to convince teens to not smoke. You know, they tried the images on the cigarette packages, nothing changed it until they told them, you know, that the companies are specifically marketing to you. So they make more money that made them stop smoking. Mm -hmm. I literally use that same thing for talking about social media as like when you're on there and scrolling, 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 like companies are doing that to their advantage, to market to you, to take advantage of you. Like it changes your brain chemistry. So when we teach them that, that empowers them and they get to make the choice. Mm -hmm. And we talk about like, Hey, what other things can build dopamine? Right. And I talk about like IRL time versus VR time in real life, find a balance, right? It can't always be virtual. It has to be in real life sometimes. And that's actually how kids talk. And it's like, oh yeah, I saw my friends IRL, blah, 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 which is hilarious. Wow. But now there's this, there's this differentiation, but it's just really, it's education, which is as naturopaths, what we love to do. We just yeah. need to teach people and I'm not forcing them or making them change. I'm giving them information and they're making an informed choice. And some teens won't change in this moment in time and some will, mm-hmm. right? Heavy teen talk. So right? much to think about. I know, Aaron, I know. you're 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 bringing some some massive <laughs> goods to the table today. Like me and me and me and Dave are like, this is. I'm processing it. I'm trying yeah. to process yeah. all the stuff you're talking yeah. about. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, a little, it's a little like. Right. Moments, mm-hmm. right? When, yeah, I think we we I think as humans, it's easy to take for granted a lot of stuff. 
and not really consider the, the repercussions. And even Dave and I have talked about these things too, like um, technological developments. We're like, this is great for the moment now, but we don't know what the long-term repercussions are. And we take all that stuff for granted. And I think that I, I love, and I think it's very smart and it would be remiss to not have a social media literacy discussion in teen mm-hmm. health talk because yeah. they are they are probably the most vulnerable mm-hmm. i mean adults are vulnerable too but while that yeah. brain is developing during that sweet oh, spot yeah. where they're really trying to find their autonomy and they're you know mm-hmm. what i mean like that's such mm-hmm. a yeah and their brains already here. developed to want to want more like risky behaviors like that's what that's why teens be like they try fast those things because they are risk seeking in a sense because they're so dopamine sensitive um, but it's all about also, cause parents are worried about that. So once they start driving and I was like, you just need to give them outlets that allow that same thing to happen, right? Like learning a new skill. What are things you have access to? Like, I don't know, learning to ski, like some new skill that's kind of exciting, but in a safe way, or I don't, like just things that you can pique their interest. That's new and risky enough. Or if they really want to drive fast, like, is there a go-kart thing? A couple of my patients have done that. There's a local like go-kart thing, go race, be fast in a safe way that mm-hmm. gives them yeah. the outlet, right? Um, which is what's important. Same with social media. Absolutely use it. And I talk a lot about using it to connect, right? And I actually have a little worksheet and it's just to bring awareness. Because again, executive functioning, regardless of ADHD or anything in teens, doesn't fully come online until like 25, mm-hmm. right? So they don't, they, they're slow processors. They don't have that like higher level function of like, what's the long-term consequence of this? Like that's not how their brain is working, which is challenging with social media because there's so many long-term consequences. So it's teaching them the pause. So before you post, ask yourself these questions. Would you want to be the recipient of that message? And every person should think this, right? Anyone posting. Would you want to be the recipient of what you're sending? Is this post or message a true reflection of who you are as a person and what you want people to think of you? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's really, let me just think about that before you post it and always wait five seconds, like just pause for five seconds and think of those and then post it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But, and, and then the, teaching the safety. life rules in general, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> it seems so basic like that when you say it, but it just, you're like, oh yeah, right. I should, I should do that. I should think about this before I do it. But also that's our role as caregivers, as people in teens' lives is to model that behavior and to teach them. Cause that's not their automatic go-to is cause that's not how they're developing. They need to talk things through, right? Mm-hmm. Even I say to parents, like you have to model it and it might be sound weird and annoying, but when you're thinking of making a decision, even if it's as simple as like, what are we going to make for dinner? Mm-hmm. Talk out loud your thought process because they need to see decision-making as like a process that happens as an example. It's like, well, what do we have in the fridge? This, this, and this. Okay, we need a protein. We need a vegetable. We need a carb. Okay, okay. How much time do we have? Like say it out loud, involve them if they're interested. That's one simple example. But another one is like, if there's a situation, a decision you're making that has long-term consequences, or if your team does come to you, pros and cons lists are game changer. It's like, I don't know if you make that decision, like what might happen and don't give them the answer. Mm -hmm. That's the hardest thing for parents is like, you need to listen 10 times more than you talk with teens. If you use every interaction as a teaching opportunity, they will never talk to you. They won't. Even if you, you have to bite your tongue so hard it bleeds sometimes, just listen to them and then you know, it's almost like when your best friend calls you and she just wants to vent, like you just listen, you don't solve the problem. You just listen. And if they ask for help then you give it, or if you're really having a hard time, you can say, Hey, do you want my opinion on this? Or do you just want to vent? If you do that, they will keep talking to you. That's the biggest things parents worry about. My teens, my teens aren't going to talk, talk to me. They, they don't want to talk. I don't know what's going on. I was like, then stop talking. <laughs> Stop asking them. Just, it's so hard. But that's the secret sauce is listen more than you talk. I can't wait to be a parent. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's parenting is hard AF, man. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It's definitely not for the meek meek of heart. It is not. Agreed. I want to, 
I do want to circle back to more yeah. of the the ADD yeah. in girls and how it presents mm-hmm. and like yeah. and and how how do we begin to navigate those waters and support these mm-hmm. girls as well? Like, is there, yeah. is there progress in that area? Yeah. So again, it's not really like all of the, the literature per se, and I am having a hard time finding it. So it's more like experience. There's lots of books. It's definitely becoming more of a thing, honestly social media has been a huge push for this because women are talking about their experience and women like 35 plus are getting diagnosed and they're like, holy shit, I had ADHD my whole life. That explains so much. Right. But for parents right now who are like have teens and maybe their teen is struggling with anxiety and depression and like, they just haven't figured not that there's always a why, but they're just like, maybe it's resistant to treatment and they're, they just can't put their thumb on it. So to speak, I usually go down this Avenue and things that would stick out to me is like, is the girl who is impulsive and that looks like, you know, she's raises her hand or blurts out, doesn't wait her turn, has a really hard time just waiting for turns like in a line, like at a, like Kim's Wonderland. Like, is that really challenging? Just like waiting your turn or waiting your turn to talk? Do you often interrupt people in a conversation or can you wait your turn? Or ask the teen when you're waiting your turn, because again, they've masked, they figured it out, their friends don't like it when they interrupt them. So they'll control it, but they're so busy trying to control it. They don't hear what the other person says. Right. So those are things that a lot of a common one I see is like, they're the kid who has like a new hobby all the time. They never finish it. And they'll, and, or they have a really hard time keeping their room tidy, even though they hate it when it's a mess, but they can't keep it organized. Um, or sometimes they're really, there's like the clumsier kid, like their, their ways have random bruises on their body. Like they're running into doorways they're tripping and falling really easy. Um, I mean, any one of these things would not diagnose ADHD. It's more of all of them together. Um, they also have a really hard time just like even feeding themselves. Like they'll skip meals and they just don't feel hungry and they can get hyper-focused. So then when they find something they're really interested in, not, like they can go for six, eight hours. They won't pay attention to anything else if they're interested in it, right? So they have this hyper-focused power but only when there's intense interest, right? And then their interest will change and they'll be bored of it and they'll move on to a new interest, hyper-focus, right? So those are the things, or to help them focus, they will watch like their same TV show on repeat in the background while they're doing work. Not a new show or new movie, but the one they've watched a hundred times or it helps them get to sleep by putting on their favorite TV show in the background. Those kind of things um, are, but those are not in questionnaires. Right. Like that's not what they're asking people. I'm like rethinking some of the teenage girls that I'm seeing right now. Literally one of them always has to have a familiar show on. She says it helps with her anxiety and depression, but I, but now I'm like, is it, is it that now Erin, you're blowing my mind (laughs) everything right now. Like, this is amazing. And I'm like, do I have adult ADHD? Yeah. I, this is also what I was like, oh my God, I'm like, I totally have ADHD. Right. Or the person who just like, you misplace things. Like you're always losing your keys. You're always losing your wallet. Or when they're younger, like did they always lose their pencil case or the stuff they needed to like do the thing, like was a pencil case or a notebook or like a hard time keeping track of their stuff. Um, right. Easily just distracted. Like, you know, you're doing something like a oh, squirrel and they're not gone. Like that kind of person. right? <laughs> yeah. And don't so like, don't so many people have kind of indications along this spectrum and like and then the follow-up to that is is some of it adaptive to the world and some of it like maladaptive like totally this is a thing it's totally a spectrum Mm -hmm. first of all and again what our world loves to do is have a diagnosis like what is it is there something wrong can we fix it and -hmm. i think really what we're learning is neurodiversity And everyone's brain just works and functions in different ways. We all have quirks. We all have struggles. And my whole goal is like educate people. And sometimes getting the ADHD diagnosis to me and for my patients is not because it matters what we label it. Because at the end of the day, how is it impeding your function of life? And how can we support you? And what strategies do you need to function and do what you want to do? That's what matters. But in our public system to get extra support, which they often need, because that neurodiversity does not learn and function well in the system we currently have. They need the diagnosis to get access to support, to get access, you know, extent, like think like just to work through the system, they need the diagnosis, which is frustrating, right? 
because sometimes diagnosing things is a challenge and or it becomes a crutch. Well, it's just in the ADHD. Yeah, mm-hmm. we don't want that. We want to empower them through it and be like, yeah, this is how you're, it's really teaching someone how their brain works, right? And we notice little traits or patterns that we see and then we can be like, oh, this is how strategy we can build to support you. Always in school, you were told that this is the strategy, but that strategy doesn't work for you. You're not wrong. This is what happens. They think something's wrong with them. Mm. No, the system is wrong for you. You're not wrong, right? And that's the same with boys, not just girls, right? Right away, like the four-year-old who is hyperactive is the bad kid. And then they're the stupid kid. But that's not actually true, but that's what they get reinforced. It's so Mm -hmm. sad, right? Instead mm-hmm. of just being like, oh, hey, we all act different. We need different outlets. We need different support. But this some of it, oh, would, I don't know. I'm probably going to, I'll say it anyway. I, I, I'm wondering if some of it isn't good though. Like, so we can be, oh yeah, it's, it's great to be diverse and everyone's different and all that too. But like, mm-hmm. He, we have like thousands of years of experience as humans that show that these, like these particular traits or habits or whatever will make your life better and those around you better. And, and I don't want to say simpler, but maybe less unnecessarily mm-hmm. complicated or, you know, your house won't be a complete shambles and yeah. you'll be able to get up. You know, you know what I mean? Like there's some, so how do you, how do you speak? to the 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 uh the critic like me who's like because I have some of these traits for sure and I and I see them in other people too and and all that and I'm trying to well I don't think that's actually good no so and I I so then okay so yes you're right like some of it makes your life in this world more challenging it just does right so it's like how can we support you and changing it. Like you just need different strategy. It's all about working with individual, like what strategy works best for you to function with who you are. Also, I will say those symptoms can be worsened and made better based on how we treat, right? Mm -hmm. Nutrition is a huge one. It's really common. I see that like in teens in general, they're just not getting enough food. They're not eating regularly and they're not getting enough protein at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Giving them enough fuel makes those symptoms way more manageable, mm-hmm. right? Makes them feel more competent day-to-day, makes their those quirks, if you want to call them, less stressful, right? They can exist in the world without too much stress, mm-hmm. right? Iron deficiency is another big one, mm. right? That's going to make it, it's not the cause of it, but it mm-hmm. will make symptoms better or worse, right? Mm-hmm. There's some evidence on like zinc and selenium that's not that strong, but right? So really it's like nutrition, obviously yeah. is a huge one. Um, and some people do really success on medication hmm. and not always forever. And maybe, and some people use it acutely during certain phases of their life. Like I just need more focus then my brain will allow me to finish this, this project. Right. Mm-hmm. Based on where they're at in life. Sometimes they don't need it. Sometimes they figure out enough strategy that they don't need medication. Right. So there's so many ways to go about it, but What's also interesting is when you look at our standards of practice, there's actually the Canadian Association of, it's called CADRA is the short form. I can't remember the whole long thing. They have like a book this big of like standards of practice and how they would walk a practitioner through diagnosing and supporting a person with ADHD. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, so that's like in, across Canada, this is what they're recommending First of all, they're recommending that like it's three to five visits of like 30 to 45 minutes minimum before you to everyone gets start giving someone a diagnosis. You really want to learn who they are, what's their lifestyle, what's all the environmental factors. But in our current system, what practitioner in our OHIP system is doing that? They, that's not how our system is built. So right. we do have beautiful guidelines of how to support someone. And they even say the family doctor should be the person who's diagnosing and following that person because it's a continuum. This is lifelong. And they know you, they understand you, and they'll see you through your whole life. But that's not how we do it. They refer out, they, they're too worried to medicate, they're not trained, they're not educated. Even though our standards of care say right now, it should be the family doctor, and you should have lots of long visits and really follow them and support them and educate them. That's the number one treatment thing first, educate them, let them understand. Because what happens, they think something, they're broken. What's wrong with me? 
I'm not fitting in, right? So it's more dealing with that aspect. It's like, no, you just think differently and your brain works differently and we just have to support you through it. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it is. I've, I think I've, one, th one thing I think that helps is, is really concentrating on a few key things that maybe aren't your strengths, but like they are, you realize they're important, like, like um, trying to keep a tidy environment yeah or or something and 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 yeah yeah so it's true for most with adhd having a tidy environment definitely helps them but it's also really a struggle for them to maintain yeah yeah right so and again this also comes down to like accessibility and resources obviously if you are in a privileged position where i mean as an adult i've hired someone to clean my house because that is not in my skill set and it stresses me out when things are unorganized so i've been able to outsource that not everyone mm -hmm. can and in a team parent relationship when they're just fighting over the messy room and not understanding why it's a challenge now it's a different conversation okay how can we work through this together do you need me to help do you want to do it on your own how can we support you in this environment to make it better mm -hmm. right instead of it just being like you're being a lazy teenager because that's mm -hmm. not really what it is Right. So it's just like, can we look at it through a different lens and figure out the support you need to make it better for everybody? Right. It takes a lot of like time, like, um, mm -hmm. I know it's important. I'm just, you know, the reality of life is that most people are working a lot. And yeah. so you come now, what do we, and both parents are, gonna... are now working. So it's, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Mom's yeah. now mom's been working for, you know, years and she's still gotta be mom. And then dads mm -hmm. do their thing too. And, and now, now can we talk about why your room has, like, you can see how some people yeah. would struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you outsource to a practitioner who is literate on that to make it quicker, easier. So you're not having yeah. the hours and hours of discussion with your team. Yeah. You come in and you get a resource and like, Hey, this is my suggestion for the strategy. that's going to help. Yeah. Right. Um, get some clarity on some real punchy stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what a yeah. good practitioner can help with. Yeah. Right. It's just like, let's just point out a few areas that we can work on first. And it's bit by yeah. bit. Like, it's not like, Oh, we're going to wave this magic wand and everything is, you know, quid pro quo, but yeah, it takes a lot of time and effort. It really does. And definitely like parenting a neurodiverse child is more challenging than not. Like it just is, mm -hmm. right? So what supports do you have access to? And there are now more and more parent groups, like based on where you're living, usually there's, if you're more rural, it's harder. In bigger city centers, there's um, like ADHD, like medical offices now, and they usually have parent support groups. However, they are very dominated by parents of boys with diagnosed ADHD. So the problems that they're struggling with are not always the same right. as the right. parents who have a daughter with ADHD, right? right? So that gets tricky for sure. But great with social media, there's Facebook groups for everything that you mm -hmm. can join. And they are full of amazing resources of other parents who are going through the same thing. Like they came with the messy room and they can share their strategy, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you learned it in 20 minutes on Facebook. Right. So that there are wins to having access to that kind of stuff for sure. Speaking of outsourcing, um, for yeah. your team collective, yeah. Um, just to wrap up, um, can you give just a quick synopsis of like what that kind of looked like for, for any kind of parents who would like to have their teenager have access to this, then for themselves to have access to mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we will obviously make um a link and the information available in our podcast uh, write-up as well for everybody listening. But can you give us a quick glimpse as to mm -hmm. what that looks like? Yeah, so the Teen Collective came out because I'm like, okay, you gotta, I, teens need information. And they need it from not their parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they need it from a trusted mm -hmm. provider who can give them healthy, accurate information. But they also want to do it with their friends. They're more comfortable with their peers. And then they want to be able to talk to their peers about it. So the teen collective is that it's peer based. So it's right now girl identifying teens, age 11 to 14. Um, it's starting again in the fall. It's actually it's had iterations, but I'm running it now as like a nine month program. We meet once a month um, and we go through like all those pillars of health. We talk about period health, hormones, mental health, stress, skincare is a common one. Um, they always want to talk about relationships and like bullying. That's usually a conversation we have and how to like deal with that. We talk about um, movement and healthy, a lot of undertones of like healthy body image and like 
toxic diet culture, like all of the things I think every teen girl needs to be armored with to get through adolescence um, is the goal. But then they also meet other girls who are having the same conversations that they can then leave with and have this connection and they can keep it going. Um, and then I also do a similar program called the Wild Collective for the mothers of said teens, where they're also learning health education, but from like an adult perspective. Um, and they usually run simultaneously, not the same evening, but that's how I'm doing it because they both need it, but they don't want to do it together. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Is it in-person or virtual? Like is the virtual option available for those? So I'm transitioning it to in-person in the cool. fall. So there's going to be a Toronto location and a Chatham-Kent location for them. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. to know. That's yeah. awesome. Good for you, Erin. And I, was, I feel like this conversation was something I found very valuable. And I think like most people, I've often overlooked that area of supporting development. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate you bringing this to the table for our listeners and even for myself as a clinician. So I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting a platform like this where all of us practitioners get to, you know, talk about the stuff we love. Yeah. Well, it makes, you know, it's like we, we talk about, it's like our, it's kind of like our friendly CE you know, it really is. It's so like, we learn so much. Mm-hmm. We learn so much from all the subject matter experts. So yeah. Um, much love right back at you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. That naturopathic podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hey everyone, Dr. Dave here. As you probably know, this podcast is all about getting the word out there that naturopathic medicine has got some serious game. Educating and inspiring our listeners to work towards and achieve better health is what it's all about. But just like it takes energy and effort to invest in and strive towards greater health, it takes energy, effort, and financial support to do all the podcast things necessary to keep this message coming at you. So please afford me a moment to share our gratitude and give a real heartfelt thank you to our show sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada. Their patient focus vision of improving health outcomes with the use of high quality naturopathic doctor designed supplements is 100% in alignment with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Their enthusiasm for supporting what we're trying to do for you, the listener, encourages us to keep producing content that will inform and inspire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Cytomatrix Canada.